If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inks, the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Wasim Daher, co-founder and CEO of Pilot, the largest technology-enabled accounting firm in the U.S. for SMBs. Pilot is Wasim's third company with co-founders Jeff Arnold and Jessica McKellar, who he met at MIT. Pilot specializes in CFO services, bookkeeping, and tax prep. The company serves over a 1,000 customers and most recently raised capital from Jeff Bezos' fund, Bezos Expedition. Prior to Pilot, Wasim founded two other companies, K-Splice, which was acquired by Oracle in 2011, and Zulip, which was acquired by Dropbox in 2014. While running their first two companies, the founders experienced firsthand the headache of handling their financial back office themselves and decided to found Pilot to address this issue. Outside of work, Wasim was a former Jeopardy contestant and an advisor to HBO's hit show, Silicon Valley. And with that, let's welcome Wasim. Hi, Wasim. First of all, Wasim, I'm thrilled to have you today. Um, let's just start right at the beginning. Um, in your own words, what is Pilot and what is the business that you built? Sure. Pilot does accounting and tax prep for startups and growing businesses. Specifically, we're the largest startup and SMB bookkeeper in the U.S. We serve about 1,900 clients, ranging from like two folks in a garage, seed stage, all the way to folks with many millions of dollars of revenue. And really what we're trying to do is give every business the financial superpowers they'd get by having kind of a team of experts helping them out with this stuff. Where did the idea come from? This is like such a very technical problem that you're solving. Where is the light bulb moment? Sure. So this is the third startup for me and my co-founders. And at our previous startups, this was such a painful problem for us. So we're really building the thing we wish we could have hired in in our previous ventures. So having struggled with this, the aha moment was really having struggled with this myself, not once, but twice, we were like, okay, we we have to do something about this. We have to solve this. We have to build the thing that we wanted to buy ourselves in our previous companies. So for somebody out there who is not using Pilot, hasn't used Pilot, what is the core product and how di- differentiate it from working with like a local accountant per se, help people understand the customer experience. Sure. So very concretely, when you work with us, you're paired with your dedicated team of experts. These are folks that are all full-time employees of ours here at Pilot, and we run the financial back office for you. So basically, you get our finance team helping you out under one roof, and the team is ultimately there to help make your business more successful. Very tactically, what do we do? Well, we're doing the bookkeeping. We're helping with the tax prep. We can help out with budgeting, forecasting, et cetera. And you correspond with us either in pilot software directly or by email, or we hop on a video call or Zoom or something. And the thing that's interesting is under the hood, we've really built the Iron Man suit for that team. We've built a bunch of software internally that lets us work more accurately, more reliably, more consistently. And what that means is we can actually do 
a really, really amazing job for you because the things that should be done by the computer are done by the computer. And the things that should be done by the experts are done by the experts. You know, you've said um, this fabulous quote, which is that you aspire to build the AWS of SMB back office. What does that mean to you? Talk us a little bit through that vision. And then I want to come back to who are your customers. So in our very first startup, which we started in 2008, the state of the art at the time was you'd have a server and a data center somewhere that hosted your website or your email or whatever. And periodically, the hard drive on that server would fail and you'd have to drive out to the server farm to replace it and reboot the server or whatever. And then along came AWS and the other cloud providers. And what they said is, listen, we can take the work of running your technical infrastructure off your plate. And when we do that, we're going to do it more scalably than you ever could, and we'd get you capabilities that you simply would not get otherwise. So we want to do the same thing, but not for the company's technical infrastructure, but for the company's corporate infrastructure, if you like, or maybe said another way, your back office. So someday, what I'd love for Pilot to be doing is taking care of your finance, your legal, your HR, your IT, and we should be running it for you with the rigor that you'd get at a Fortune 500 company even though you might be a 10-person startup or a boutique marketing agency or you know the local coffee shop. Who's like a perfect customer for Pilot? What size are they? What does it look like? And how has that evolved over the last many years? The initial customers we started serving were technology startups of various sizes and stages, ranging from literally the two people in the garage that are just getting started all the way to companies that maybe you know have raised a Series C and have a full-time finance team, a VP finance, a controller, all that stuff. And from that kind of early starting point, we've really expanded out to also serve a bunch of e-commerce companies, professional services firms. Ultimately, the aspiration is, look, we want to do this for every business in the United States, every business in the world, ultimately. But our sweet spot is really what I think of as kind of like a quote-unquote modern company. And by that, I mean one of the key things you need to be a good fit for Pilot is you kind of need to be on electronic workflows. So if you have a giant stack of receipts or a pile of paper invoices, we're not really a great fit for you. But if you're using you know, the Stripes and the Shopify's and the Squares of the world, like that's actually much more our sweet spot. One of the things I really admire about you and have admired um, from afar, you've talked about the importance of building a business with a massive TAM, and SMB accounting is literally a $60 billion industry. How did you think about staying focused as you attack that? Pay it forward to people listening. How do you segment a market, and how do you think about go-to-market? Totally. And it's really interesting because there are kind of two competing thoughts you have to keep in your head simultaneously. The first is the importance of the market being large. And of course, the bigger your market is, the more breathing room you'll have. And if the market size for your business is in fact in the many, many billions of dollars, capturing a small percentage of that still yields a very big business. And the reason you need that is because you don't want to wake up one day and find that you're bumping up against the ceiling of the total addressable market for your thing. Now, on the other hand, the size of the market is actually kind of irrelevant in the early days. Like it doesn't matter if the market were 40 billion rather than 60 billion, you're 0.00001% of it or whatever. It doesn't matter how big it is in the early days. What really matters in the early days is you need to be laser focused. You need to pick a small niche or subset of the market that you're going to understand really well, that you can understand really deeply, that you're going to really nail the use case for. And I think it is much better to have a small number of people 
really passionately love and require what you do and feel like you're solving their problem really, really well versus having a large number of people whose reaction is like, shrug, it's okay. So I think you got to find that initial pocket that really is going to be your champion. And for us, it was these kind of early stage startups. Your bookkeeping firm, right? Supporting companies through the last few years, which have been just like wildly turbulent economic times from the pandemic and now a recession. How did you think about playing offense for your customers through that? How did you think about making sure you were a safe haven for your now literally many, many, many thousands of customers? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we we did it sort of in two ways. One is just directly via the service we provide to you. I mean, one of the benefits of having us take care of the financials for you is you know where you stand. Like you get the profit and loss and the balance sheet from us. You can talk to our fractional CFO team to help out on kind of what your KPIs are. So the big piece that I think we really did for folks is you've got to know where the business stands. You have to know the financial health of the business. And of course, we kind of directly provide that. But the other thing that we did and that we do that I really like is we challenged ourselves to go a little bit further, which is to say, listen, this struggle here, the agony of the business owner in times like this is not just have my taxes been prepared correctly or you know, is my balance sheet accurate? It's, look, this is untrodden territory for a lot of folks. So we put together actually like a, a nice little short guide, which is like, look, these are our tips for navigating the downturn. And it's like, look, you got to know what your key top line indicators are. You need to know the health of your business. You need to know your cash burn rate, how much runway you have. And then just a very tactical guide to like, look, if the name of the game is optimizing cash, well, you have a couple ways to do that, right? You could spend less or you could make more. And here are a series of tactical tips, boom, 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 for, for each of those things. If you fast forward a decade, are there any predictions or is there anything that you're seeing in the data, in the go-to-market, um, in the businesses, how they're being shaped? Are there any predictions you have that you could share with us given your unique perch? Probably the thing I have the greatest clarity on and is really what does the future of the financial back office look like for these folks? And I think one of the things that's really interesting about kind of how we got here and where we're going is today at Everywhere But Pilot, the vast majority of the work done in the finance function is done manually, extremely manually, extremely tediously for reasons that are really basically historical artifacts of how we got here. But the reality is for these, again, these kind of quote unquote modern businesses, more and more of this stuff is done electronically, is done in the cloud, is done ways that APIs. And I think that's going to just unlock a bunch of really interesting stuff, both in terms of how the work is performed, but also like the speed and accuracy at which the work is performed, where I think 10 years from now, hey, this was my balance sheet or P&L from last month is going to be too slow. I want to know what was it today? Like, give me real-time insights and guidance into the health of my business. And also tell me, like, how am I doing relative to my peers? Like, hey, there are 3,000 other businesses like mine in my industry, in my geographic area. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could tell you you're spending way too much on thing X and here's what you could do to save money? Like, these are actually things that will make the business more successful. And I think we have the opportunity to really deliver them to folks in a kind of like structured, programmatic way that is that is really available to every business owner, not just the big companies that can afford fancy strategic finance teams. 
was senior on your third company. Can you tell us what you feel like given those experiences? What have you learned that has made you even better each time? And then I want to come back to like, what have you always been scared that you could be complacent on because you've done it too much? So let's start with the like, what do you bring with you with each rep that is making you better? Sure. So I think a couple different things. One, and somewhat uniquely for us, it's been the same founding team basically across these three ventures. And what that means is there's just a lot of known stuff that has already been figured out that has already been ironed out. Like the fact that the co-founder dynamics are well understood and who's responsible for what and how we operate. There's a whole bunch of like working cadence stuff that we've evolved together over the past decade plus that is just very dialed in. And if you think about kind of risk factors for early stage startups, like one of the big risk factors or one of the big things that kills early companies is basically like founder drama. Like do the founders get along? Do they work well together? Like there's a bunch of the nuts and bolts mechanics of running a company that, you know, this is the third time doing it that we just like know how to do. Oh, this is the playbook for hiring people. This is the playbook for recruiting. This is how you think about equity compensation. This, you know, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that is just dialed in. And what that means is we can be laser focused on the specific details of this particular business. Like what are the things about Pilot that are unique that require us to invest a bunch of kind of brain power and energy versus what are the things you just need to do to have a company that that works well. So I, I think that's probably like a big piece of it. I think the other thing that that we sort of learned very viscerally firsthand from our previous ventures, I'd say for the first one, it was really about the importance of market size. The first company was a company based on my co-founder Jeff's master's thesis at MIT. He had some cool tech and we were like, look, People need this. You know, the thesis was correct, but I don't think we were very thoughtful about, well, how big could it be if it works? And like, what does the landscape actually look like? And I think we got much sharper on that in our kind of subsequent ventures. And I think the big lesson from the second company is I think we did a good job identifying sort of a very painful need in the market. I think the thesis was really sound, but I think we learned some really important lessons about kind of workflow. Like when you want to get someone to use your thing and your thing is different than what they've used before, like how do you actually make that work or what are the pitfalls? And I think there, there are things we, you know, if I went back and did the previous companies that we would do very differently based on what we know now. And a lot of that I think is informed how we run pilot. But is there anything that you are paranoid about that you like don't want to lose that beginner's mindset or that first time mindset that you have to keep with you? Totally. Yes. I think it's actually less about this being the third company like in and of itself, but actually more about this company being the largest company of the companies we've had. We're about 400 plus people today at Pilot. And one of the things that I feel a lot of anxiety about is making sure we don't get complacent. Like one of the things I think about a lot is, and this sounds maybe a little bit philosophical, why do startups exist at all? Like, why should it be the case that a new company is able to do something that existing companies can't? And the fact that startups do exist suggests that there is some advantage that startups have over larger companies. Because larger companies are more well-capitalized, they have more people, they have more resources. Like, it's not obvious that a small company should be able to succeed against that. There must be something fundamental that small companies have that they can bring to bear to successfully win market share against the big companies. And... The biggest thing that is, is really kind of speed of execution. And I think the, the natural tendency of companies as they grow is to develop like inertia 
And I spent a lot of time thinking about like, are we being scrappy enough? Are we moving fast enough? Are we being hungry enough? We haven't won. No one at Pilot thinks we've won. But are we operating with the velocity that we need to to really do a great job out there? And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Wasim, I want to move to you. If we go back to when you were little, are you sort of on the clear path? Like, did you know that this would be the outcome or did you like fall into entrepreneurship or is it entrepreneurship day one? It's a little confusing for me, actually, because on the one hand, there were definitely examples of entrepreneurship in my family. My childhood was like a very classic, raised by immigrant parents who came to this country with very little. And like my aunts and uncles are all small business owners, mostly in Ohio. It's like, you know, like a coffee shop or a bar or a small medical practice or whatever. So I think at a young age, I was exposed to the idea of like, oh, you can actually have a business and also like how much work that requires. On the other hand, like if you sort of look at my path all the way up until kind of pre-MIT, like, you know, I always really liked computers, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion for me that I would study computer science or that entrepreneurship would have been a thing. I think there was a very realistic alternate world in which, you know, I don't know, I studied political science and ended up as a professor somewhere and actually would have been totally happy with that. I think it was really the thing that catalyzed it for me was going to MIT and mostly because I think it made it seem attainable in the sense that there were other people there that were doing it and you're like, oh, right, this is a thing that people do. This is a thing you could actually do. Was there something that stood out that your parents did that you think helped attribute to making you special? Was there one thing that, like, if you really rewind the tape where you say, wow, that specific thing I will do over and over for my own future kids. So I think there were kind of two elements that are actually not at odds, but maybe seem like a little bit that they are. The first thing is kind of, as I said, like very classic kind of immigrant, like frugal, family-oriented, value of hard work, held you to really high standards. Like my brother got an A- minus at some point, and it was like a big issue like at home. But it was paired with a very, very palpable sense of actually, and it sounds cheesy, but like unconditional love and support. Like my parents were not very prescriptive at all about the exact path we took. Like, yes, you had to be good at school, but I think we all had the feeling that they'd have our back, whether you want to be a writer or a doctor, you know? And they were also both very present in our lives in a way that I now realize is actually somewhat unique. Define present. What do you mean by present? They were just like there and involved and like around. And not to be like two gender roles here, but I think like, my dad, especially relative to people of his generation, even my relatives, like I think was just a much more involved parent than, you know, the average Lebanese immigrant dad in the 80s and 90s was. You've talked before about the importance of being an opinionated as a founder, even when you don't have perfect information. How have you honed that? And, and what do you mean by that? Sure. So 
the truth is I'm still really bad at this. Like I think I find that I am very easily swayed by the last person I talk to. But I think one of the things that has helped me really get to conviction is talking it out with my co-founders where just, again, we have this kind of large shared fact base and, and deep trust. And I think also the realization that, look, sometimes there is no clear right answer. Like you just have to go for it. And that indecision on a topic can in, in many cases actually be worse than making the wrong decision because you just paralyze the company, you prevent any action from happening. And if we go back to this idea that speed is kind of the, the critical thing for a company, that requires you to just make a decision so that we can actually have forward progress and see what comes of it. Something else that you said, which is that in the early days, it's really good to have your hands in a lot of things. Later on, that same instinct will turn you into a blocker. Tell me more. It, it's interesting because is kind of exactly as you said, in the early days of the company, nothing happens unless you do it. Like if you don't answer the support tickets, no one will. The default state of your business when it's you and your co-founders is if one of you doesn't do a thing, it doesn't happen. And what's interesting is as the company grows and as you hire more people, the flywheel sort of starts to spin and it like has momentum. And I remember very vividly, like one day you kind of wake up and you're like, huh, I'm not doing anything at this particular second. And yet the business continues to run. And that's a good thing. That means you've actually like done a good job of hiring good people and delegating and all that stuff. But in the early days, if the thing that allowed you to be successful or caused you to be successful was to go super deep and like be really involved in every single thing, and I think in the early days that is really, really critical, once you've now hired a team whose job it is to own that thing, it's actually now a problem because you're swooping in over them and saying, no, I don't like the way you're doing it. Like, let me do it. It's very disempowering to them. And if you're not careful, you get into this mode where they're just say, sitting around waiting for your approval. And it's like, well, then why did you hire this person at all if you're not going to let them actually do their thing? And so I think for me, one of the one of the key things to kind of get used to is this notion that if you're having trouble delegating, you sort of have to ask yourself, why? Is it because things are actually not being done well? And if that's the case, fine, make clear to the team what the business result is and hold them to it. And if if you don't think it's a team that can achieve it, make the changes you need to make. Or is it actually because things are not being done the way you would do them? And that's a subtle but important difference. Like the, the outcome and not the path is what matters. And like just because someone is doing it differently than you would have done it doesn't mean it's wrong as long as the outcomes still work. And I think that is like a hard thing, I think, for the early stage founder to internalize because in the early days, the opposite is true. In the early days, you do have to roll up your sleeves and just do everything. What's the most stressful thing you've had to deal with in a company since you've had three? You know, there's always something. And this is the thing that I think maybe you, is a little bit unexpected. For me, I think in the early days, I sort of imagined, well, if we only got to this milestone or we only got to this size or we only hired person XYZ, like suddenly all my problems would be solved and I would be able to just like really devote time to thinking about the strategy or whatever. And like, no, that's not true. It's just that things go faster. The problems that cross your desk are different, but there is always something. And in particular, it's a good thing. It's a sign of actually like the system working, but fundamentally the stuff that crosses your desk is the stuff that the organization is not currently capable of solving. 
which either means that it's like deeply unpleasant or annoying or like really cross-functional. So you always have something where you're just like, uh, so I don't know that there's, there's one particular thing. It's just like constantly, this is, this is what you're going to deal with. And not to complain, like it's an amazing job. And the reason that you have the opportunity to do this stuff is because of all the, all the great stuff you built with your team. I don't know that there's any one particular thing where I was like, oh, you know, this was a highlight of something that was really painful. It's just a kind of constant steady stream, unfortunately. <laughs> well, same. I remember very clearly a day early, I was probably 27, running LearnVest, where I realized we'd started to scale. We had a huge, you know, real management team that my job shifted to like really fun stuff, like product development and like talking to customers and like building the brand and the vision to just solving really gnarly problems that the organization could not solve, which meant that they were often pretty complicated and there wasn't a clear answer. And I one day was like, oh, I'm the mental janitor. That like literally my job is I'm dealing with the hardest parts that nobody else wants to deal with. And I was like, oh, that's my new job. That is my job. I do that every, every, almost every hour of every day, that is what I'm tackling. Um, and being like, got it. This is a new chapter of being the CEO and having to teach myself to love that part of the job. Totally. Because no one wants to hear you complain about it either is the thing. It's like, no one is interested in like, boohoo, your job is so hard with Steve. Like, you know, who are you? The people you can complain to actually are your co-founders. So it's, that's another reason it's nice to have the kind of like deep co-founder trust relationship. Last question on you, Wasim. As a founder, is there one sort of thing that you hold as sacred? Is there like a principle, something that you really live by that you think makes you excellent? One of the things that I think is really critical, I basically think you have a strong ethical obligation to two people. One is to do right by your customers, and two is to do right by your team. And the reason that's the case is because in the early days, especially in the early days, but kind of always, they're both actually taking very, very big chances on you. And I don't take that obligation lightly. And I think what I have found is if you do right by them, if you do right by your customers, you do right by your team, that even if the business isn't successful, you will be proud of what you did and what you achieved and what you accomplished. And I think you do reap real dividends from that. And for us, I think about like, there are people on our team at Pilot who you know I've known and have worked with for probably 15 years at this point across a bunch of different companies. And there are even customers that actually have been customers of probably two of the three. I'm not sure there's anyone who's done all three of our, has been a customer of all three of our companies. But it's like the reason that that stuff happens is really because you, I think, as a founder of the business, honor that obligation you have towards your customers and to your employees. And when you do, I think good stuff happens. Well, Seema, I'm going to ask questions. First thing that comes to your mind, quick fire round. I want to know the biggest pinch me moment to date you've had a pilot. So many. I think probably the the top one is probably Jeff Bezos investing. I was an intern at Amazon in 2005. And so it was a nice, like, kind of full circle moment for me. Is there an interview question that you believe gets to the heart of who somebody is that you really like to lean on? It's a good question. I like, I don't like gotcha questions. I like, don't like a sort of gimmicky the questions I like the most are the ones that really most accurately simulate the role. The The one I do like to ask, and I like ask this basically every time, is it goes something like this. It says, look, you're a smart, talented person. There are a million other opportunities out there for you. Like, why are we having this conversation? Or just like very real talk. Like, what is it that you are actually looking for? Because the question is not generally, 
are you capable of doing the job? It's like, is what you're looking for and what I have on the menu, like, is there actually alignment there? Because that's the thing that's going to determine whether or not the relationship will be successful. Is there a quote that you are inspired by? Like, quote that you've come back to over and over? Yeah, this is maybe a little dark. I'm very into, like, memento mori. Like, all of this, like, time is fleeting. Someday you will die. This will all be gone. Like, make sure you're spending it well. If we fast forward two years, what do you think remote work looks like? Oh, I'm so bad. At, uh, maybe unexpectedly, I'm really bad at predicting the future. My guess, though, my guess is that we will probably see like two or three days a week in the office, with the exception of companies that were started with the explicit intention of being fully remote or distributed. I think it really works if you build the culture and the systems and all that up from day one, from the ground up. I think it's hard to kind of bolt on after the fact. Got it. Um, and then what's one other category of innovation that maybe doesn't touch pilot at all that you're excited about? This is like a little bit of a betrayal of my engineering roots, but I have to say that I'm like, I'm not excited about technology or shiny demos like for their own sake. I think people just don't actually care about tech. They care about things that tangibly make their lives better. And I think a lot of the stuff that's super hyped right now is it's fun to see and it's fun to play with, but I'm still waiting for like, someone to really connect the dots to get it to that, oh, this really tangibly makes life better point. Got it. You like technology that works. <laughs> yeah. I like, in some ways, again, weird for, for me is with an engineering background, like one of the, I think the myths of the engineer is like, if you build the thing or if the tech is great, like people will come and they'll use it. And I think the opposite is true, actually. Like people don't really care how it is achieved. People care about what it does for them. I appreciate that. Wasim, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it is a, a, not only a pleasure, it's so impressive. You're too, truly a, a three-peat founder, and I'm just, I know what you're going to accomplish in the coming years. is going to be pretty exciting. So um, thank you so much. Everybody out there, if you haven't already, checked out pilot.com and learn more about what Wasim is building. Um, and you can join us next week for Ink This Founders Project with Alex Montobel. Wasim, rooting for you. Super, super pumped. Um, and thanks so much. Honored to have you on today. And um, can't wait to learn more from you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. 